Welcome to Unstyled. I'm your host, Christine Barbrick, co-founder and global editor-in-chief of Refinery29. Each week, I invite a notable person to come in and talk with us as we explore the funny, inspiring, sometimes heartbreaking tales of life, work, and love, as told through the things that we wear. Jenna Lyons is in limbo, or more likely, onto something. In 2017, she departed her post as president and creative director of J. Crew, the job that catapulted her to super-style stardom at the company where she'd spent her entire working life. From her first job as an assistant menswear designer, Jenna inched her way up for decades before taking the lead, a role that would change her life, or maybe more so, our lives. There, she revived and revolutionized the iconic brand originally birthed in 1947 and emerged an icon herself. Jenna and her label became a visually synonymous power duo. She was, as New York Magazine put it, the J and J. Crew. But she wasn't always. Growing up in Southern California, Jenna was acutely shy and regularly bullied. She suffered from a rare genetic disorder, which caused skin scarring, hair loss, and malformed teeth. She's openly worn dentures since childhood. Jenna wanted nothing more than to blend into the background, but that wasn't going to be an option. She made her first item of clothing in a seventh grade home ec class, a floor-length yellow skirt printed in watermelons. When she wore it to school, everyone asked where she got it. That was the catalyst. She was used to people looking at her appearance, but now they saw her. 30 years later, ironically, Jenna has been the subject of constant imitation. By the time she was appointed president in 2010, Jenna had become a bona fide celebrity with a legion of fans who copied not only her clothes, but her signature thick-framed glasses and hairstyle, side part and pulled back tight as a drum. Her old Brooklyn brownstone remains an interior design landmark, though Lyons hasn't lived there for years. She and her ex-husband sold it in their 2011 divorce. The breakup was heavily covered in the press, as was her next relationship with jewelry executive Courtney Cranji. The spotlight isn't always comfortable, but Jenna is a big believer in living outside the comfort zone. Stepping into the uncomfortable zone, she says, is the secret to her success. And that's where she is today, on the cusp of a new chapter. The question is, though, what's it going to be? More fashion, her own line, or something else entirely? Thus far, she hasn't said. Because for the time being, Jenna is just happy being Jenna. Hi, Jenna Lyons. Hi, Christine. Thank you so much for being a guest on Unstyled today. Thank you for having me. I want you to tell me a little bit. I know that you've probably told this story a million times, but because I think you're in the midst of such a huge transformation right now, I would love to just talk about what that felt like at the beginning of that transformation when you started to really identify what this sort of thing was that you wanted to create at J. Crew. I think that one of the things that most people don't realize is that I had been there for an incredibly long time. So my entire tenure lasted 27 years. So I had seen the company go from a mom and pop, really small company, and really understood what the genesis of the brand was, 
And I'd seen it move through many different iterations, whether it be new CEOs that had different directions that they wanted to take. And and then when Mickey joined, he really wanted to take it back to the roots of what it was. However, the roots were, at that point, almost 15, 16 years old. And so there needed to be some connection to what it had been, but it needed to move forward. And, you know, it was probably one of the most terrifying times of my life, um, and mostly because I had a tremendous amount of responsibility, and yet the last thing I wanted to do was show my fear. <laughs> I was scared every day, <laughs> and mostly because I felt like people were relying on me, and I didn't always have the answer, and I think I learned really early on that it wasn't about having the right answer. It was about actually like having a singular point of view and just moving forward, and I think a lot of times, especially in fashion where, you know, it could be many different things. This top could look great with that top. This color could be great in that. There's so many choices. At some point, you have to just go with your gut and move forward. And getting everyone around you to feel excited and comfortable with that only works if you have the energy and the excitement around those choices. And so I found myself sometimes thinking to myself, God, was that the right choice? That's going to be so incredibly ugly. <laughs> and I made mistakes and I had to learn how to make mistakes. And learning how to make mistakes is probably one of the, the biggest insurmountable things I felt at the time. And once I got through that and realized that it was okay, and Nikki was actually supportive of making mistakes and trying new things, that was a huge um, a huge leap and it got me to the other side. Um, but it was I mean, literally, I, I was scared every day. I think that feeling of knowing that you need to take risks and you have to kind of go out on a limb, especially for yourself, when you feel like you kind of have to make the call, like you're looking around, it's like, anyone going to tell me to make the call? Oh, they're waiting for me to make the call. I got to make the call. And yes. <laughs> I think that there's nothing more thrilling than being on that precipice and just being able to kind of say, I really did that. You know, I really trusted myself, even though I knew it might blow up in my face or you know, be an enormous fuck up. And I think that's something I read in one of your interviews too, is that you felt a lot of pressure because so many of your decisions were attached to so much money. And I think that that is, that's another thing I wanted to really talk to you about. I think that the biggest struggle that I've, that I've kind of confronted or at least um, dealt with over the years is balancing this role of being an executive, but also being a creative person, which is what I am, which is what mm -hmm. the, you know, the reason why I wanted to start a company in the first place and having to really sort of set an example for the people around you. And I think that that's something that you really became known for aside from this trademark look that you created at J. Crew, but the people that worked with you and worked for you talked about you with such reverence. I mean, how did you... I paid them all a lot of money. <laughs> no. um, you know, I remember very, very early on, something happened to me and it made me really understand the deep level of partnership that was required from all parts of the business to make it work. And um, there was this guy, Nick Lamberti, and he managed all the money. And this was way back in the early days of J. Crew, And we had a new season that was coming in and I needed to get sample fabric ordered. And I was speaking to the fabric person and she said to me, well, Laura Smiani won't take our order because we haven't paid our bill from last season yet. And they won't take an order for a sample yardage. And so I was like, what do I need to do? And she's like, you have to get someone from finance to pay the bill or we're not going to get the fabric. And I wanted that fabric. It was beautiful. It was the most exquisite cotton I'd ever seen and I wanted it. <laughs> and I found out who worked in accounts payable and who I needed to talk to. And it was Nick Lamberti. And I marched myself over to Nick's office and I said, hey, I need help. 
He literally opened a drawer. He pulled out a stack of checks. And I had to, you know, he's like, here's all the accounts that are, here's, here's everything that's payable. Tell me what I cannot pay right now. And I told him who were the bigger companies on the list that I was like, okay, I know that we don't need to pay that I love one now. Him. He made me tell my story. He made me explain myself. He made me verify and sort of give him like the facts and so that he could do his job better. But then he actually helped me out. And having that experience really young made me realize like I needed the people in accounts payable. I needed the people who worked in finance. I needed the people who worked in HR. I needed the people who worked in the merchandising and buying department. I needed everyone. It wasn't about me doing something on my own. It, I mean, of course, the design team goes without saying. That is a huge, massive relationship and so, so delicate and tender. And I have so much respect for all the creative people I worked with. At the same time, I really revered and and respected and needed the people who were my like sidekicks and partners and peers. And, you know, some of them were more senior than I am. Some of them were my subordinates, but I needed them all. And, you know, it doesn't, um, you can't do it on your own. And that, that was really helpful, I think, having that experience so young because it really fed into how I tried to work. I was going to ask you, like, what is it, what does it feel like to have time? I mean, I think I've never had time. I mean, I literally left college and went straight into working. I've really never had time. Right before, right as I was leaving the company, as I was getting ready to leave, I listened to this podcast that was probably one of the most influential things I've heard. And it really, it was the best thing I could have done right before leaving. It was a social experiment around um, around creativity. And they took two groups of people, 10 people. They sequestered them for two weeks. And each group got the same bricks, the same art supplies, tools, and everything you could possibly imagine to manipulate and change and work with the bricks. And one group was given no access to internet, no access to books, no access to library, no access to, to inspirational materials, nothing. They were sequestered like you would a jury. They had no access to television, phones, nothing. The only thing they were given as inspiration was a phone book. Like biosphere kind of thing. Basically. Okay. Yeah. They had a phone book and that was it. The other group was given every possible access to you know, incredible imagery, libraries, beautiful art books, all kinds of things, and they had the internet, the World Wide Web of everything you could possibly imagine. And after two weeks, they brought out to see what they had done with the bricks. And the group that was bored had come up with some of the most magical ideas. They had ground the bricks down and made tiny little pottery out of them. They had done incredible little step works and reconfigured buildings and made these incredible um, art pieces that looked like, you know, nothing you'd ever seen before. And they were excited, they were proud, they had worked together. And the other group had made things that they'd already seen before. Um, they made things that you would have already found in the world. They made replicas of things. And while they were beautiful, they had also siloed themselves. They had gone off into small groups. Some of them had worked alone. Uh, and it was just a really interesting thing. And so, you know, I remember this pressure when I was leaving the company to be like, well, I should learn to cook. I should learn ceramics. I should do all – maybe I should take tango lessons. <laughs> ceramics? I don't, I don't fucking know. Everyone's taking ceramics these days. I, know. I mean, you know, I don't know. And um, You're going to make pinch pots? <laughs> I mean, listen, if I could be Mary Fry, I would make a pinch pot, but no. Yeah, right. um, I, you know, listen, um, I realized that maybe I could be bored. And I've never felt so refreshed and nourished and so – like clear in my head about what I want, what I don't want. I have literally spent a lot of time sitting on my couch and it's been incredible <laughs> and I don't feel guilty about it. You shouldn't feel guilty about it. I think that's wonderful. I look forward to a time when I have time and I can actually sort of just feel like I can just listen to my own thoughts. When I first left, I I had some conversations about what my next step would be and I realized that I was entertaining things that would have put me right back in a situation that I had come out of and 
I've had the time to think about it and I realize that's not what I, I, I had an amazing experience at J. Crew and worked with some of the most incredible talented people. I don't want to replicate or try to replicate what I had. I won't be able to. And so I have to do something really different. I don't think you need to. I don't think so either. It took me a while to get there to be able to really be okay with not doing some version of what I was doing before. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, too, is did you interview with Emily Senator Woods? She was kind of the face of the brand. And um, she, I mean, yeah, I mean, well, she I don't know for, for those people who don't know who she is. Yes. She was the woman who started J. Crew. Her father gave her basically a company to revamp and she completely changed it and made it in her in her vision. And she had a real sort of classic East Coast Nantucket uh, vibe to her, but also mixed with a little California and, and she personified the brand because it was it was all what you know what she wanted it to be in her closet, and she was the woman who hired me eight years ago. But when I read in our research that you had interviewed with her, I was really stunned because when I was in high school, she was like one of the only female executives that I really identified with. But she was also young, and she had like a lot of responsibility really early on. She was she was really beautiful and in kind of an unconventional way. Yes. I just remember thinking even at that time, like, I wanted to work at J. Crew just because it's it just because it felt like a new day was dawning in just like the fashion industry, because I worked at the Gap like all through high school and, and sometimes through college. And J. Crew was kind of like the ultimate that. And remember Banana Republic, how cool Banana Republic was? Well, of course. And that was Mickey Drexler. Yes, I know. When it was sort of very safari driven, mm-hmm. it was kind of amazing. Because oh. she was completely different from any other kind of executive I've I mean, ever seen. It was like nothing I could have ever expected. You have to understand the company was so small at that point. So it was literally like a family scenario. I mean, her father had the office next to hers. She was incredibly quiet, very, very quiet. He was also very quiet. Uh, and there was just this sort of calm, serene mood in the office. And yet, at the same time, we were all a bunch of gaggly girls in the back. And, you know, interesting enough, some of the people who I worked with at the very beginning are still there. She really put together this incredible group of talent, and we formed an intense bond and a long-forming relationship. You know, there was the old days of J.Crew, and then there's the new days, and, and there I love them all. She was incredibly hands-on. She would come out and literally be on the floor for hours laying out the you know what the catalog pages were going to look like and sitting with the team and you know picking which models were going to be which models she also really pioneered a different kind of photography this sort of very natural like what a snapshot might look like and worked with you know would do things like if Arthur Algort just give him the clothes and let him go and photograph his family as opposed to make it look like a photo shoot and a catalog and I think that was really revolutionary no one was really doing that catalogs didn't look like you could actually live in them. And I think that was a huge change and, and really helped pave the way to this sort of idea of lifestyle in a way that really was a lifestyle. And that's that was unique. You sound like you're describing yourself. <laughs> Sounds no. familiar to me. <laughs> it's interesting that you were talking about Emily Wood's kind of perspective about catalogs, because I think that that was something that you really defined in a lot of ways at a time when I think we needed it. And I think that your use of real women over traditional models. It was so instrumental in the industry of having campaigns using real people. Because at the time, we were using a lot of real women in our photo shoots. They were attached to stories. So obviously, it was important to be illustrating, you know, different trends that we were talking about. I think it was just really important for for women to see other women that were not just beautiful and interest or interesting looking, but that had really cool jobs. I mean, you actually would write, you know, little bios of, you know, what they did. And it just really made you, it moved you in a way that 
you actually did really want to buy clothes because you felt like you could really identify with them. You could see yourself in those clothes. I mean, that's great to hear. And I think that started a little bit of where that came from was through the partnerships. I think probably um, about, I don't know, five or six years ago, we started doing something. I remember we were walking the floor um, and walking the floor is basically where we review all the styling before the catalog goes out. And I remember looking at the men's shoe selection and saying, my God, why is it that all the boys in the office are wearing red wing boots, but we only have desert boots and tennis shoes to pick from? Why can't we have something else? Because we were, you know, it was a fall shoot and it just sort of fell flat and it needed something. And we were shooting in Big Sur and it was like, oh gosh, I wish we had some really great boots. And and so, you know, the team was like, well, you know, we don't want to develop a version of red wing boots because that's just weird and it's not who we are and it doesn't make sense for us. But our customers are buying them. And so we went to Mickey and said, how would you feel? And, you know, he had come from that world of wholesale and people, you know, because he'd done that along the way and he was sort of had been apprehensive and he and he being the person he is was like, why not? Like He just sort of threw caution to the wind. And he said, well, if that's what you want to believe, let's let's try it. And so through doing that, we started to feel like we had to tell the story of who Red Wing was. They're an American company, where they came from, their heritage. And so through telling those stories, we then started to interview the people who were a part of them. And and then what started to happen was we, as we would go and work with some of these smaller brands, there were these amazing people who were also customers. And, you know, they were all versions of shapes and sizes and age. And we found them interesting and beautiful and really um, and passionate. And so we started to shoot them. And then that got an incredible response. People really liked you know, hearing more and seeing who those people were. And that led to, uh, you know, us really trying to do as much as we could to show real people. And, you know, there were so many incredible, interesting, unique people in our office. And that was also something that we started to, you know, it got challenging because everything, you know, (laughs) when you do it within the office, someone's feelings inevitably get hurt. But uh, I think that that was also then, you know, trying to turn our, our, our sites outside and use people that were just customers and people who we admired, whether, and that didn't necessarily mean that they had to be a head-to-toe Daycrest customer. And I think that was one of the things that was important to us as well. Is like, we never really expected anyone to wear the clothes head-to-toe. I, I didn't. I loved mixing clothes. But I think that you can be a customer and still, you know, wear a Red Wing boots or a barber jacket and wear them with your Daycrestinos. And that's cool. And that actually is how people dress. And so allowing for that really felt honest. And, and I remember Mickey using a word once that I really liked, which was generous. It's like, we should be generous. Like we should be grateful and generous for the customers that we have and show them that respect and love and like give back a little bit. And so that was sort of how that all started. That's beautiful. <laughs> I also really enjoyed like even, I mean, I never, who, who looks through catalogs anymore anyway? It's so funny, but I would like really get excited when the J. Crew catalog, and I would, didn't even really like wear a ton of J. Crew clothes just because I shop mostly on eBay and get everything vintage or whatever from, you know, designer friends. But but I did buy some things because I knew how thoughtful the sort of making of them was. And I would love when you did this great piece. Do you remember when you used that fabric from that British pajama company Drake's. or something? Drake's. Oh, yeah. And I bought like four pieces from that collection. Yay, yes. That's amazing. With this beautiful unicorns yeah. on it. I know you hate that word unicorn. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I just don't like being called. <laughs> yeah, you're a unicorn. No. Um, anyway, but this beautiful purple pajama top with, um, you, I think it had unicorns on it or some kind yes, of mis- mythical creature. Yeah. Yes, it did. And I just loved reading about this little blurb about this about this incredible fabric company, this textile company. It makes me happy. I mean, I think it's hard to it's hard to like touch people at, uh, these days. There's so much information. The fact that you, someone who obviously is, you know, and you know, there's a lot of information coming at you every day. I know what that's like. It's hard to get someone to stop and pay attention. So I'm I'm not naive about you know how the big business of fashion works, but because I love it so much, you know, as an art form and and what it does for me as a mm-hmm. person. I don't know. I just think that you were somebody that really tapped into a way that made it available to to everybody. That's nice. Thank Not you. just people that were in fashion. Thank you. I mean, I appreciate that. You're so welcome. Much. It's interesting because I'm I one of the things I am doing that I'm, I shouldn't probably talk about too much, but is Come working. On. Just <laughs> talk was, about it elusively. It's elusively. okay. That'll be really I'm good. I'm working on something where the materials are such that as as they do in fashion, some the best materials and the best things often are things that get better with age. And so, you know, especially with clothes, I mean, I think if you think of like a, a beautiful leather belt or a leather jacket or the perfect pair of jeans or a white shirt with the collar and cuff that are sort of soft and beginning to fright, like those things I find so incredibly beautiful and, and far more elegant than having everything be pristine and new. And so I think giving your clothes some sort of respect and and wanting them to stay with you and you know and it's interesting because you know I have now not been working in an office and so I have to, I can dress differently I don't wear and I find Do you really that, feel you dress differently yeah oh my god yeah I mean I will literally wear the same thing for a week in a row <laughs> I just interviewed Linda Rodan and she said that she does that too and I find it very refreshing <laughs> I, mean, I do it and I go to an office. I, I just have no shame about I, it. Well, I enjoyed dressing up. You know, I loved it. And also, you know, listen, when you're staying at home and there's no one to see you, it's you, you have a different level of motivation. I liked dressing up and I liked seeing the people in the office when what they wore. And I, like, it was a, it was fun. It wasn't that I did it out of feeling, you know, like I had to. It was fun for me and I enjoyed it. And I loved seeing what the stylists were wearing and I loved seeing what the people on the creative team were wearing. You know, that was, it was part of the game. It was so exciting. It was like the peacocks walking down the hall all the time. I loved it. Uh, but I don't have that anymore, and that's okay. It's just it's really changed the way I dress, and it, I'm wearing I'm wearing the clothes I owned before, but I'm wearing them and seeing them differently. And I find that the things that I'm gravitating towards are some of the things I've had for the longest amount of time. Yeah, they're the most comfortable. They often they have a worn look. They're not at all like there's no sort of pretense to them. They're just like the perfect pair of jeans, my favorite white shirts with my monogram and that kind of stuff. <laughs> Unstyled Podcast is made possible by Refinery29 and Airy, your body-positive go-to for intimates and loungewear. You know exactly what you'd want to wear while binge-listening to your favorite podcast. Never retouched and always real, Airy gives you the everyday pieces that make you feel confident, strong, and always the real you in your own style.
Were you afraid? Did you, for any moment when you were preparing for the Met Ball, did you think to yourself, is it a bad idea to wear a denim jacket to the Met Ball? You know, interestingly enough, that was the second year. (laughs) And so the first year, I had had this funny thing happen where I was so nervous and so anxiety-ridden about going and so... Like, I was so twisted and not that I did not prepare. I literally, like, buried my head in the sand and did not do anything. And I would say seven days before the Met Ball, I panicked. And I started to walk around the office and said, like, okay, there's got to be something around here. Because we had all kinds of beautiful collection things and things from Wedding Line that I was like, well, there's got to be something here that I can work with. And there was hanging in the hallway this dress that was came from Shamiza, one of the most incredible beaters they do, all the beating for Chanel and Valentine. I mean, just... Their workmanship is insane. And it was a wedding gown sample. And it was too expensive for us to make into a wedding gown, so we weren't going to produce it. So it was a, a one-off sample. But it was a strapless dress. I was like, I'm not going to wear a strapless dress ever, and certainly not to Met Ball. So I threw it on. I was like, well, what if I made it into a skirt? And so I literally was in my office pinning it with on myself to make it into a skirt. And I called the girl who sort of helps with things, Daphne. She came in. She's holding it on me. And on my rack to the left, I, I kid you not, was a men's champagne-colored cashmere sweater that was there for – I always had stuff in my office for whatever reason. Maybe we could have been looking at cashmere colors. I have no idea why it was there. A men's V-neck. And I threw it on over because I was naked on the top. And I looked in the mirror and I was like, I kind of like this. <laughs> and, this is kind of working. And it's kind of what I would do anyway. And so we tailored the sweater just a little bit because it was a little bit big in the arm. And when I walked up the steps, Stella McCartney was there and she said – look at you wearing a jumper to the Met Ball. I love it. And I thought, okay, like, that's great. And she was standing next to Anna and Anna, you know, smiled and said hello and and greeted me warmly. And I was like, okay, this is okay. And so it kind of, I don't know, there was something about Stella McCartney saying that to me that gave me license to feel okay about the jean jacket the next year. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, there has to be a certain sort of pride in knowing that whenever there's like a a Hall of Famer, you know, sort of slideshow that you're always in it because, I mean, who really likes to get dressed up for black tie stuff? The fun of it is being able to wear something that doesn't feel traditionally black tie. Totally. Now that you've told that story, which I don't know if you've ever told, but I feel really lucky that you told it on Unstyled. Thank you. It just means more because I feel like the fact that you buried your head in the sand before the Met Ball just Terrified. sounds... Terrified. <laughs> so what has this transformation been like for you? Like... Because you had like two really big things kind of end at the same time. Um, This 20 sort of, you know, plus year career, which, you know, really made you famous. And then we don't have to talk too personally, but, you know, a long and very significant relationship that you had that ended, which I was really sad to hear about. I was super bummed because I love her. Same. But I think those two things happening at the same time were so kind of... I mean, it was... Remarkable. And I just think that... I'd love for you to just talk about whatever you're comfortable talking about in terms of what that felt like with those two enormous, like, you know, life-defining things, like, kind of falling away at the same time. I won't lie. It was incredibly depressing and challenging. And I, true to form, I buried my head in the sand a little bit. And I kind of cut myself off from a lot of things and people. um, And I needed to. I needed to not feel like I had to explain what I was feeling because it was just, it was devastating. And I think one of the things that I was grappling with and and probably to a certain extent still am is, you know, after being someplace for 27 years and my own personal style being sort of so mixed in with the brand and being out in the world and people saying, oh, are you Jenna Crew? And I'm like, 
well, no, I'm Jen Alliance. That company was Jake Kurt. It wasn't my name. And at the same time, so there's that piece, which where my identity was sort of wrapped up in this brand and trying to figure out, well, then who am I now? And and then like the real the real hard part was really losing my home family and my work family at the same time. And obviously I still have my son, but like that sort of that security at home, like at least having the balance of one when in and, and having them both shift so deeply at the same time was really it was dramatic and it still is. Um, you know, I miss the people from J. Crew every day. You know, I I worked there even when it was hard sometimes because I loved them. You know, I love Mickey and revere him deeply and and even though he, sometimes he drove me crazy, I, I've never had so much fun, you know? I do have to tell you, I had lunch with him probably three months ago and two significant things. I think he almost cried when we talked about you. Aww. I mean, literally almost cried. And when we were out on the street saying goodbye, he called me Booby. And honestly, I almost cried when he said that. <laughs> he's such no, a, he's... an extraordinary, such an intense, driven person, but... He's also, I mean, I I can't, you know, having not had a father in my life, I mean, my father left when I was quite young. And I remember really distinctly sitting across from him. um, And this was when we had a great year and he was, you know, giving me a bonus check that year. And I remember him looking at me and pushing the check across the table and he said, this is for you and your family. And it was just, and I, like, I knew that that's what he, like, he worked hard and wanted to have the company to do well so that he could provide and share like wealth and happiness for everyone that worked with him. And it was really like, oh, don't make me cry. Oh, that's so beautiful. It is. I mean, and how it was, often do you get a boss like no, that? No, it was amazing. I mean, and, seriously. And so it, and the thing is it made, it made not just me, it made everyone who worked with him want to, to do good, do incredible work and to work with such an incredible group of people that I had so much respect for and so much love for. And, I still text and talk and, you know, even my assistant who was with me for 13 years and who I adore and still talk to all the time. And um, it was hard. I also I also had to learn. I mean, I couldn't send a goddamn attachment. <laughs> I literally. Oh, Jenna. Oh, I had. Because the thing is, I had gotten to the point where I had assistants right when computers were still really but getting put into place. And so I never was really doing a lot of that stuff for myself. I had people who were doing that for me. And I know that's no excuse, but it's sort of where I was. So all of a sudden I was faced with... It's easy, right? No. Like, it's like paralyzing. I mean, attachment's not so bad because now I can just click on the thing and push the the little icon on the bottom left. You can do it. (laughs) Making travel plans is literally like sticking needles in my eyes. Um, You know, it's hard. It was, I lost, like, all of the support was really gone. And it was, I mean, yeah, it it was crippling. It was absolutely crippling. And... What do you think you learned about yourself, though? You know, I, I think that only now am I starting to feel like I was worried that uh, there wasn't anything without everything else. You know, I was worried that what I had was, you know, there was was smaller and smaller and smaller. And as I sort of let my world kind of like everything sort of started to fall away, I like, God, what am I going to be left with? Like, who's going to even want to talk to me? Am I even interesting? Is Can I do anything? Do I have anything to offer? Like, it all just sort of like, it was literally like, you know, I felt like I was powering down sort of, and like that sound on the computer. I I was, you know, and I think it took a long time. Like I I am so grateful for the time I've had because I don't think I could have gone back to work any sooner than even like now. It's just been, it was hard, you know, and I've seen Mickey and he's, you know, he wants to get back into the work, but he's so, but I think he's had so many incredible experiences in his life and he's so energetic and he, I think, 
you know, he knows how good he is and he's had such incredible success. I think he doesn't doubt himself the way I do. And I think it's, and that was one of the things that DVNF and I talked about quite a bit was just like self-doubt and it's pervasive. It's super, super hard to get around. And I have it all the time. I mean, I have it today. (laughs) I'm going to have it tomorrow. Um, I don't know. I mean, what have I learned? God. Well, what do you do to, to sort of like help, you know, sort of counter the self-doubt because I think we all have that especially when especially when you've achieved any any sort of you know amount of success regardless of you know how much success but I think it does make you question I think that that's where the whole sort of imposter syndrome kind of comes from you feel like you know do I even know what I'm doing am I even good at this am I awful and just people aren't telling me and I think that we all sort of have those feelings of just questioning our own value. I mean, listen, I don't think there's a secret sauce to to combating that. I do think that, you know, I have been really fortunate to be in a place where I have like good friends who have been with me through all of it. And I have a child who as now like has I sort of decided like I I have some real work to do in terms of finding like a deep connection with him and really showing him how much I love him and and being there for him in a way that I wasn't able to before. And that's been, inc- I mean, you know, literally we were away, just the two of us this past weekend. And just randomly over the weekend, he must have said three or four times, you know, mom, I love you. And I was like, what made you say that, honey? I'm so, thank you. I love you too. And he's like, he's like, I just, I just like being with you. And I was like, okay, good. That's all. like, and it's so powerful. It's so moving. Cause it's like that, at the end of the day, like, can I just be alone with one other person and still have them feel good and be happy? And that is like what you're reduced to. And there's something like uh, uh, kind of amazing about that. And it was really like so, I mean, literally like, when he wasn't looking, I like my eyes welled up with tears. I turned around and I was like, <laughs> you know, like thank God. I mean, but if you didn't have this time, you wouldn't, I no, don't think I that don't. you would be able to sort of like, not appreciate that moment or even just him saying that to you, but you wouldn't even be able to really hear it. I don't know if I would have had the moment. I don't know if I would have put my phone down long enough. I don't know if I would have sat in the pool with him for two hours watching, you know, restaurant disasters with, you know, (laughs) and, and talking about Minecraft and Fortnite and all of his, you know, games. I probably wouldn't have had the appetite or the bandwidth to do that. And I do now, and it's amazing. And it makes me clear about what I need to do going forward, which is healthy, I think. I actually really get excited when I have people come in that want to talk about or at least are going through something that's just – that is really life-changing in a lot of ways, some you know, good or bad, because I think it really – the way that we come out on the other side of it is just like so – inspirational to the rest of us because we know that that's coming for all of us. There's just like, you know, we can't really escape, you know, big changes if we're really living and we're really sort of present. I also think everyone on their Instagram posts that their life is perfect and it's just not. When I was preparing for, you know, to talk to you and um, I remember, you know, this time when I was in my late 20s and early 30s and I was going through a really, really, really tough time. I mean, a lot of people are going through a big transformational time at that point in their lives. And I read... um, Pima Chodron's book, um, When Things Fall Apart. And it really restored my faith that it was supposed to happen and it was preparing me for, for being a grown up. And I wanted to read these two quotes to you, but it says, we think that the point is to pass the test or overcome the problem. But the truth is that things don't really get solved. They come together and they fall apart. Then they come together again and then they fall apart again. It's just like that. 
The healing comes from letting there be room for all of this to happen, room for grief, for relief, for misery, and for joy. I mean, that's yeah, it's beautiful. I think she's incredible. I mean, I remember one of my friends who um, has been, you know, here through me with all of this said to me, like, you know, I've have spent a lot of time running away from the pain or ignoring it or even when things were hard, I would just push it away because I had to or I thought I had to. And, you know, she was like, why don't you just sit with the sadness, like just sit with it and actually experience it. And I didn't actually understand what she meant. <laughs> and it took me a while to sort of understand like the only way to pass through it and the only way to overcome it and to get to the other side is to actually like experience it and not be so afraid. Like I can't even remember when I was working at J. Crew. I never cried. It took a lot to get me to cry. I mean, and I went through some really, really challenging times. And since I've left, I've maybe cried like eight million times. <laughs> you know, and just allowing myself. Yeah. I mean, I didn't I would not have said that. And I still don't love the feeling of like losing control that way and feeling that vulnerable. It's not my favorite space. Um, however, I'm getting more comfortable with it and more used to it and less afraid of it. But it's hard. It's hard. And I it's funny because there's one that says don't let life harden your heart. And I remember, you know, as I had I grew up in a situation where it was a little tricky to to find sort of tenderness. And so I really got good at compartmentalizing and was able to really say, well, that really hurts and I don't like it, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna focus on it. I'm not gonna think about it. I'm gonna just put it over there in that behind that door. Fine. The problem is eventually someone opens the door and it all comes rushing back. And, you know, I, I spent a lot of time doing that. And so I, I had gotten, I don't know if I let life harden my heart, but I certainly shut a lot of it out. And so I've spent a lot, a lot of time the past, you know, year and someone that's um, trying to like just be more tender, I guess. Yeah. Jenna Lyons, thank you so much thank for being you. a guest and on style today. Thanks for having me. I just love you. Oh, I love you too. Right back at you. I hope you're inspired after hearing Jenna's story. For even more unstyled extras, check out Refinery29 or my Instagram at Christine Barbrick. You can also join the conversation using the hashtag unstyled across your social media. And of course, we'd be infinitely grateful if you'd please subscribe to the Unstyled podcast on iTunes and rate us while you're there. You can head over to refinery29.com to find this episode and more. And make sure to sign up for our exclusive Unstyled newsletter delivered straight to your inbox every week. Our show today was executive produced by Bridget Todd, associate produced by Rebecca Easley, and edited by Priscilla Mena. Copy support was provided by Kelsey Miller. Our theme music today is by the artist Koff. And we recorded Unstyled with Paul Ruist at Argo Studios. We'll see you back here next Monday for a conversation with actress and Broadway star Cynthia Rivo on navigating success and destiny. 